The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Like said, is America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. I hope you're having a good weekend. Um, a lot to do, as always. Super glad you're here. Quick friendly reminder, my book's still available, of course, How to Change Someone's Mind. You can buy that on Amazon. Uh, oh, and I started, mm, haven't talked about this yet. I'll talk about it next week. Uh, if you go to our Facebook page, you'll see all you'll see the announcement there. So search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and let's hang out there throughout the rest of the week. I hate we can only hang out on Saturdays, so uh, Facebook's the best way to stay in touch. And then on Facebook, you'll see the announcement of a new project that we are embarking on as well. But in the meantime, we got a good three hours planned for you here. So I want to do our uh, our Statue of Liberty segment to kick off our three hours here. I feel like. A Statue of Liberty segment comes up every once in a while. I think we did a short one last week, but um, this is important stuff to know because it will always keep coming up forever. Uh, This is in reaction to the clip that I'm sure you heard between Stephen Miller, the White House press secretary guy, and Jim Acosta, the CNN anchor, about Trump's immigration proposal. And they were going back and forth, and, and Jim Acosta brought up the Statue of Liberty Uh, And he said, what you're proposing, the CNN guy said, what you're proposing doesn't seem and does not sound like it's keeping with American tradition when it comes to immigration. And then he looks at his notes and says, the Statue of Liberty says, (laughs) which I just, just need to pause on that. The Statue of Liberty says. So this comes up every few months. Let's uh, let's chat about it. Every time someone brings up the Statue of Liberty, remind them that it's the Statue of Liberty, not the Statue of Immigration. It's called Liberty Enlightening the World. Telling the people all over the world that you too should institute a government that protects people's liberty. It was not the Statue of Immigration to light the path to come here for everyone in the world to come here. The poem may have done that, but the poem isn't law. The poem isn't policy. The statue of Liberty says, like that's not the same as saying, well, statute 432 of, of act to, like that's, that's statute and statue are different thing. There may be a statute of Liberty that says something. It's a law. But the Statue of Liberty, it doesn't matter what it says. It's, it's a poem. Oh, but Slater, why are you being such a hate monger? The statue represents so much to the immigrants who came here on boats to New York City. Okay, let's chat about that. Uh, immigrants did not go to the Statue of Liberty. They actually did not even go to New York City. They went to Ellis Island. So if anyone, you're talking to someone and they bring up the Statue of Liberty, make sure you also get into a conversation about Ellis Island because that's what really matters. It's, it, it matters less what the Statue of Liberty represents and more what Ellis Island was. So I think we did talk a little bit about this last week or two weeks ago. So let, me, let me do that quick and then I want to go a little deeper. Um, if you've been to Ellis Island, it's a giant hall, a big room, 
And on the side are all these examination rooms. So if they saw you get off the boat and stop because you were short of breath, they pulled you aside and checked you for heart problems. They checked everyone for goiters, fungal infections, ringworm. They gave you a psych exam. The big inspection was the eye exam. They looked for trachoma. It's an eye infection. And before antibiotics, you could go blind. It was super contagious. Here's the key with this. If you did not pass the health exam or the psych exam, they put you back on the boat. I just feel like we have this perception that you got here, you stepped foot, you were here, that's it. No, they put you back and they sent you back. Now, here's the, the most important part of this. Who paid for that? Most of these people were super poor and, and every dime they had, they paid to get here. It was a one-way ticket. But now we're sending them back. So who paid for their trip back? The steamship company, the boat company paid for them to go back. Which means that company, the steamship company had a major incentive to not even let on board certain people if they knew that they wouldn't be accepted in Ellis Island, right? So my point is there are two checks. You have the check at Ellis Island and the doctors are like, mm, I don't think so. You got your coma back on the boat. But before that, before they even left England or wherever the boat was leaving, before they even left that port, they had the boat people saying, I don't think so. <laughs> you definitely got your coma. You're out. Because if they put them on the boat and send them to Ellis Island, Ellis Island would have put them right back on the boat and the boat company would have had to pay for them to go back. So there were two checks before people got approved, allowed to go into America. Uh, Charlie Martin, who, who's uh, someone I'm, I'm enjoying his writing more and more. He talks about his grandmother who came to this country in 1904, which was the year after the poem was put to the base of the statue. Um, and he remembers his grandmother talking about Ellis Island and how frightening it was. I, I don't know what people's perception of Ellis Island was, but you know, it's probably very Disney-esque or, or very, it's like a Budweiser commercial, right? Where you have the, the poor immigrant coming across and then they see the Statue of Liberty and they, get off on Ellis Island and it's this grand triumphant entrance into America. Mm, No, pretty scary because they really were not sure if they were going to be sent back or not. They could very easily turn you around. I have here in front of me section 12 of the immigration act of 1903, this 1903, the same year that the Emma Lazarus poem was put on the statue. Uh, Here are all the things that you needed to enter or you needed to to uh, present before you you were allowed it. You needed name, uh, age, sex, married or single, calling or occupation. Were you able or are you able to read or write? Hmm. That's interesting because Donald Trump, one of his proposals and some of the Republicans, because my understanding it was a, some Republicans proposal and Donald Trump just sort of signed on to it or agreed to it. Um, so one of the proposals is you have to be able to know English. Well, that was also one of the requirements of the Immigration Act of 1903, the same year that the poem was put on the statue. Your uh, what nation you're from, your race, your last residence, your final destination. Uh, here's some more. Again, this is the Section 12 of Act of 1903. Whether the alien has paid his own passage or paid by another person or a corporation, society, municipality, or government, and if so, by whom? Whether in possession of $30, I don't know why 30, 
And if less, how much? Whether going to join a relative or friend, and if so, what relative or friend, and his name and complete address. Whether ever before in the United States, and if so, when and where. Whether ever in prison, or almshouse, or an institution, or hospital for the care and treatment of the insane, or supported by charity. Whether a, so do you have a criminal record? Whether a polygamist, whether an anarchist. And what is the alien's condition of health, mental and physical and whether deformed or crippled? And if so, for how long and from what cause? Uh, So those are the questions you needed to answer. So it wasn't just game on, come on in. This is a chart from October 1903. There are four classes that they would put people in when you arrive. Class one was uh, people who were dangerous and contagious. So it would disease. Class two, insanity and idiocy. Class three, loathsome. I feel like I may be putting that one. The loathsome category. Uh, and class four, likely to become a public charge. That means welfare. So likely to be put on public assistance or to need public assistance. So dangerous and contagious. So disease, insanity, and idiocy. Not smart. Loathsome, just generally <laughs> not good. And likely to become a public charge. Poor. So those are the four classifications that you were put in uh, for the people who were sent back. Really, none of those are any different from what the Republicans are proposing, especially that last one, likely to become a public charge. One of the proposals is that you need to be able to pay for your own health care and not sign up for government health care. And that's what they asked of immigrants in 1903 as well. What's your likelihood of becoming a public charge? That's all we're asking again today. And I don't want to hear anyone say that illegal immigrants can't sign up for free benefits. Of course they can. I think it was last week we read a letter from Medi-Cal. So this is a Medi-Cal that's, uh, uh, that's California's uh, health insurance for low-income people, Medi-Cal. So they sent an email, or excuse me, a letter out to everyone. And it said, if you are an undocumented immigrant, we don't care. Come sign up for Medi-Cal. That's not our business. We won't ask. We're not connected with ICE or anything. If you need health insurance, you come to us. Doesn't matter what your status is. I, I, I don't have it in front of me now, but I had a picture last week. I think we talked about it last week. I had a picture of it right, right in front of me. I had a picture of the letter that they sent out. So yes, illegal immigrants get public benefits. Now in October, 1903, People deported, 30 were likely to become a public charge. One person was loathsome. One was insane and 61 had diseases. Those all, all those people were put back on the boat, sent back. That's just October 1903. And remember, that's the second test. The first check was whether they let someone on the boat on the first place at all. So the poem, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That's great. Beautiful poem. The actual immigration policy of that exact same year and that time was to admit healthy immigrants who could support themselves, which is pretty much what Republicans are suggesting today. one 888 I want to come back and talk about a meritocracy and I want to talk about Letting, quote unquote, letting people in. You know, when we talk about letting people in, we usually refer to immigrants coming into America. But there's another major institution in America that involves, quote, letting people in. 
that the progressives are in control of, and they're pretty demanding themselves. And actually pretty racist, too, about it. We'll talk about that next. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. But I want to play a clip here. This is uh, the great Dennis Prager, a brilliant man. He was giving uh, or he was a part of a debate at Oxford and the debate was about Hamas and Israel. Partway through his his opening point, an Oxford professor stands up to ask a question and listen to how brilliantly Prager responds to this. Two, two quick notes before we start it. Uh, there's two two SAT words in here. Perfundity means insight he says something like mm, i i don't quite see the profundity of your question i don't see like why your question is that insightful is what he's saying uh and then the other word is benighted which at first sounds like a good thing when i first heard it because i thought of like a knight like a knight in shining armor and you're benighted you're you become a knight that's good uh but it's not k it's like knight as in darkness so it's to uh be put in the dark so it's to be in a in a deep state of ignorance, like a sad, pitiable, pathetic state of ignorance. So profundity and benighted, those are the SAT words of the day. Here is Dennis Prager. Please. So all of the organizations that you're citing as a threat to peace just happen to be Arab and or Muslim. Could you explain to me why you think that might be the case that you only view these organizations as threats to peace? I don't... Okay. You, you, obviously, those of you who applauded perceive the profundity of the question that I didn't. I don't quite understand. They are all a threat to peace. That is correct. Why did I only pick on Arab Muslim? I said Boko Haram. That is not Arab. Arab and or Muslim. Yes, Arab and or Muslim. That is correct. The only beheading groups in the world today, to the best of my knowledge, are Arab or Muslim. Why do you think that is, in your estimation? Why do I think that is? Sad to say, it was answered by Arab intellectuals at the United Nations because the Arab world is, in a, is a benighted place at this time. The status of women is particularly low. The Arab world translates fewer books in a year than, uh, in 10 years, than Greece, the entire Arab world translates fewer books than Greece does in one year. There is no interest in the foreign world. It is a benighted world, the Arab world. It is a tragedy. This is not anti-Arab. If you love Arabs, you have to understand how low the level, the moral level of the Arab world at this point is. And that has nothing to do with individual Arabs who may be saintly. But that is the, that is the dominant moral state. You are taught that you cannot judge civilizations as if Britain and, and, uh, uh, and Mali are on the same uh, moral level. That is, to, that is to give up on hope for humanity to claim that there is no civilization that has produced something better than something else. So that, that, that is the mm. tragic reason. They're not beheading people uh, in, in Western civilization. They are in the Arab and Muslim worlds. 
and not the entire Muslim world. Let me stop there. So now, why the- I love that line. To, to say we can't distinguish between civilizations is to say that there is no civilization that has ever produced something better than someone else. And that is not only wrong, but that is the opposite of enlightened. Right? We're told that to think that, to, to think in this multicultural uh, lie, that that's the enlightened thing to believe. Uh, it is quite the opposite. We don't need more Yemen culture or Saudi culture here in the United States of America. We need to be able to intellectually define aspects of different cultures and discuss things that are compatible. Maybe even talk about things that are, that are, that are better of some other cultures, some other aspects of other cultures that are better than ours. And, and, and maybe think about bringing uh, more of that into America and actually being more of that here in America. For instance, uh, uh, in Asian cultures, there's more respect for elders, right? So maybe that's something we should be more of here in America and we should allow different cultures in here that also have that same thing too, right? I mean, and I understand it's difficult to socially engineer a nation, right? That's not exactly what I'm talking about, but to, to, to totally throw the whole concept of a difference in culture uh, in the difference of cultures is, is uh, clearly not wise. All cultures are not the same. I ask again, what part of Yemen's culture do you want more of here in America? Last week, we talked about a very, very simple difference. I think if you were to take two cultures that are most alike, it'd be American culture and British culture. And that would make sense, right? I mean, we came from England, right? So those are the two cultures that are most alike. And last week, we told the story of uh, washing machines, washers and dryers in London and England and all of Europe are total garbage. They're the easy bake oven of appliances. They're absolute, they're atrocious. And everyone knows they're terrible. They don't wash your clothes that's what they put up with them because their culture and it's always been this way at least the last 200 years their culture has always been to accept things the way they are keep calm and carry on right that's their very that's their mantra in in, in england this is uh, from an anthropologist she wrote a book called watching the english she said that the british have a mindset of a sense of passive resigned acceptance and acknowledgement that things will invariably go wrong, that life is full of little frustrations and difficulties and that one must simply put up with it. Now we use the silly example of washers and dryers, right? That's a little frustration and difficulty when your clothes don't get clean and your shirts don't get dry, but they just put up with it. (laughs) Just meh. That's the way it goes. Not in America. We'll never put up with that. Not a million years. We would put up with dryers that don't work properly (laughs) don't dry your clothes but we also shouldn't like the british are put up with an invasion of muslim immigrants that have a completely different sharia culture that is transforming their society in profound ways right they have a similarly resigned acceptance to that i bring this up only because if you were to pick two cultures in the world that are most alike it's england and america and even our two cultures have a pretty drastic difference between them. Does that mean that all people of different cultures are bad? Of course not. But why mix different cultures when it's not necessary and when we have a choice? 1-888-900-3393. Join us on Facebook. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Coming up next, I want to talk about uh, 
something going on in our Cal State University system. You're not going to believe this. Next, Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater, forget about understanding and studying other cultures. That's not what multiculturalism is about. It never was about understanding other cultures. It was just about hating our own. But um, forget about that even. I'm talking about reading, writing, and math. Uh, I have seen no better example of the failure of the K-12 education system, specifically in California, than what I'm going to share with you next. The example that I've been going to the last month or so about the failure of the K-12 system in America is the story of six high schools in Baltimore. Actually, to be fair, I think it's five high schools and a middle school. So six schools, big, like normal-sized schools, so hundreds of kids. Six schools, not one student who can read at grade level. Not one. Out of six schools, there's not a single student who can read at grade level. It used to be you have six schools and maybe there's one student who can't. Now it's there's not even one student who can. How do you, you you literally can't get worse than that. But I want to share a specific California story. We've talked before about the percentage of kids who go on to college who have to take remedial classes. So in California, we have three levels of higher education. You have community college, and then above that, you have the Cal State system. And above that, you have the UC system, University of California. So you have community college, above that Cal State, and then the UC system, like Berkeley. Uh, So UC would be the smart kid, the smartest kids go to UC. 20% of kids who go to the UC system have to take remedial classes because they can't read and write and do math. In the UC system, it's 40%. 40% of kids who graduated high school who go on to the the, the Cal State system, 40% have to take remedial classes, which obviously makes you think, well, how could they have graduated in the first place? How could they have gotten into college? They still have to take remedial classes. So Cal State says, whoa, Jesus, way too many kids who are taking remedial classes. We have, to, uh, we have to solve this problem. So you know what they decided to do? They just got rid of all the remedial classes. Gone. No more. No more remedial classes. What? Uh, here's our local paper. Currently, students who enter Cal State without demonstrating... I don't know how many... I think there's maybe 20 Cal States across the, across the state. Uh, students who enter Cal state without demonstrating college readiness in math and or English are required to take up to three traditional remedial classes before they're allowed to enroll in courses that count towards their degrees. If students do not pass these remedial courses during the first year, they are removed from university roles. The problem with these non-credit remedial courses is they cost students more time and money, keep many in limbo and often frustrate them to the point that some eventually drop out. So because of that, they just got rid of them. And I know you're asking, well, 
but they don't know how to read and write. And getting rid of the courses doesn't, they still don't know how to read and write. No, no, don't worry. They're replacing it with something. What are they replacing it with? Uh, Students and faculty will spend the next year coming up with new and creative curriculum in math and English for first year students. (laughs) That's awesome. New and creative curriculum, which I guarantee you will result in kids not knowing how to read, write, or do math at the end of that year. But they're going to spend the next year coming up with it. That amazing. So I, I, I'm a loss for, for words, honestly, with this whole thing. It's, this is so incredibly frustrating. You have high school kids or kids graduating high school who can't read and write. They go to college, still can't read and write 40% of them, which again is a huge indictment on the K through 12 system. But then they go to this Cal state, they go to college. And instead of Cal state trying to improve their reading and writing or better yet, I think not accepting them if they can't read and write in the first place, they just say, well, whatever. <laughs> and just keep them in school. Keep these kids in college, not knowing how to read and write. What the heck? Imagine you're a professor. Let's say you're a, a philosophy professor or heck psychology, whatever. And you have now all these students who can't communicate their thoughts to other people. That's what, I mean, that's why it's important to be able to, so it's important to be able to read so you can listen to other people's thoughts. It's important to be able to write so that you can communicate your thoughts. And there are kids who can't do that. They don't know how to spell. They don't have proper grammar. They, they don't, they can't turn a phrase. They can't write out their ideas. And you're a psychology professor and, and you're, you're grading papers of people who have the, the ability of a, of a eighth grader. What is this? And you know Cal State's just going to graduate these kids now still not knowing how to read or write. So there's three reasons why Cal State is really doing this. They're not going to say this out loud, but these are the three real reasons. Number one, it's all about graduation rates. Uh, This is from the article. Cal State has committed to doubling its four-year graduation rate from 19% to 40% by 2025. So right now the Cal State graduation rate is 19%. What? What the heck is that? That's awful. 19% of kids graduate? Wow. Um, so they just want to increase the graduation rates because then that, uh, you know, oh, look, more kids are graduating. That means we're doing a better job teaching. Reason number two is that colleges, and this is true across the country, colleges think that students are customers. This has changed in the last couple of decades here. This, this idea that students are customers. They're not. They shouldn't be. Because if college kids are customers, it means they're always right. And it means that they will be catered to and served and treated like kings. I want to play, coming up a little later, a clip of Adam Carolla. I'll give the context to it in a second here. But Adam Carolla has a great line. He says, yeah, yeah, kids are the future. But adults are the present. And adults need to be in charge today. And if we don't do a good job of that, then we're going to screw up our kids and therefore our future. So this is the head of Cal State. He says, having so many students start their freshman year being told that they're already behind, check this out, doesn't help foster a sense of social or academic belonging. So do you see what it's about? It's all about your, a student's, a customer's sense of social belonging or even their sense of academic belonging. What does that mean? Do, do you know how to read and write? 
If you don't, then you shouldn't feel academic belonging. You should feel like you don't belong. And you should be inspired, therefore, to fix that and learn to read and write and do math. So then you will start feeling like you belong. Because right now, quite frankly, you don't. So instead of helping the kids who don't know how to read and write, learn to read and write, they're saying no one needs to know how to read and write. (laughs) And this is college. The third reason they're doing this, it's all affirmative action stuff. This is the chancellor of the community college system. Uh, She says this is the right approach for all of public higher education. I personally strongly believe that standardized placement exams have handicapped hundreds of thousands of our students and they particularly target low income students and students of color. We've been putting many students in remedial courses that don't belong in those courses and making it harder for them to complete their college education. Total nonsense. Um, No one's targeted. Just because someone puts in a standard and if certain people don't meet that standard, that doesn't mean you're targeted for it. Low-income students are not targeted. Students of color are not targeted. Let's say that low-income students and students of color are less likely to pass the standards. That still doesn't mean they're targeted. But the fact that they are doesn't mean that it has to be that way. And actually, it's wildly insulting to these kids to say that they are being targeted and that they have no hope. I want to share a quick story here from Thomas Sowell. Uh, Again, Black Rednecks and White Liberals, please buy this book. I'll put it on my uh, Twitter page right now, Slater Radio on Twitter. I'll put a link to it. Please, please buy this. It's required reading. It's an incredible book. 1898, Dunbar High School in in Washington, D.C. There were four public high schools in D.C. Three of them were white. One was black. Dunbar was the black school. In the standardized tests, 1898, so we're just a few generations outside of slavery, the black school, the kids at the black school performed better than any of the white schools. This was true. Dunbar's success all the way into the 70s. Now, in the 70s, you had a bunch of black activists who wanted to keep black people down in order to justify their own activist existence. So they started saying that, oh, well, Dunbar was successful because these black kids come from the middle class. The class of 1892, 1892, the occupations of the parents, there were 51 laborers, 25 messengers, 12 janitors, and one doctor. That is hardly middle class. Thomas Sowell tells the story in the book of how uh, someone wrote a magazine article about him and a really nice magazine article. And it was about how Thomas Sowell grew up in Harlem and then went on to become an academic. He spent the last couple decades of his academic career at, at Stanford. And when this magazine article was released, he got a letter from, uh, from a black man around the same age who was a lawyer, a big high-powered lawyer who said he was amazed at the magazine's tone that Thomas Sowell's experience from Harlem to academia was unique or unusual. Like, oh my gosh, look, this, this man grew up in Harlem and went on to be successful? What? So here's this lawyer reading that saying, what are you talking about? This is Thomas Sowell. He, the lawyer, had grown up in Harlem during those years, just a few blocks from me. From the tenement building in which he lived came children who grew up to become a doctor lawyer, a priest, and college president. Indeed, where did today's black middle class come from, if not such places and such schools? So if, if black students 
were able to to succeed in 1898 low income students of color in 1898 were able to succeed not just based on their own standard but based on better than the white kid that was true in 1898 but we're, we're telling kids today that it's not possible in 2017 so many excuses from the adults who are supposedly there to help kids succeed and thrive this is so bad. It's so pathetic. No more remedial classes at Cal State. Not because no one needs them, but because every It's all now just remedial, isn't it? 1-888-900-3393. I'm going to put that book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals by the great Thomas Sowell on my Twitter right now. Slater Radio on Twitter. Please buy it. Rate the second. It is fantastic. It is perspective blowing. It, this is a book where I, I had to stop underlining because I was just underlining every single paragraph. It's Every single word is gold. It's amazing. Check out Slater Radio on Twitter. I'll put a link to it there right now. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. is Mike Slater. My last point here, and then I want to talk about artificial intelligence, which these kids will be in for a rude awakening when they don't have any jobs when they graduate anyway. But um, we're doing our kids no favors. There's no, there's no surprise that there's a correlation between grade inflation, uh, lowering of standards, a removal of, of real curriculum, a removal of the classics, a removal of Western literature, uh, and, and, and again, just a general lowering of the standards and an increase in anxiety and depression from younger generation. There's a direct correlation between those two things for a reason. Julie Hames is a mental health professional at Stanford, and she says, or she did a study of 100,000 college students over 153 campuses and said that within the last 12 months, 84% of kids felt overwhelmed, 60% felt very sad, 57% felt very lonely, 51% felt overwhelming anxiety, and 8% seriously considered suicide. So what do these kids have, what, what, do, they, what do they have to feel sad about? <laughs> I think about it, like life is way better than any time ever. Kids have more access to information and books and spiritual connections and people than ever before. We have more leisure time than ever before. So why are people so overwhelmed and sad and lonely and full of anxiety? I only have two minutes here, but in short, helicopter parents, helicopter parents and, 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 uh, and uh, adults that adults that pamper their kids and systems like the university system that protects instead of builds. It's the classic line that we use all the time in the show. Are you preparing 
the child for the way or, or are you preparing the way for the child? Are you preparing the child for the way or preparing the way for the child? Uh, this is what this Stanford person says. When children aren't given the space to struggle through things on their own, they don't learn to so- solve problems very well. They don't learn to be confident in their own abilities and it can affect their self-esteem. The other problem with never having to struggle is you never experience failure and people can develop an overwhelming fear of failure and of disappointing others. And the low self, both the low self-confidence and the fear of failure can lead to depression or anxiety. So you see that lowering of the standards, removal of difficult curriculum, removal of Western literature, removal of all these things that make kids stronger and give them an identity and a purpose and a connection with the past and a reason for the future. You eliminate all those things. And the fear of failure and anxiety will continue to go up and you will be more and more depressed. There's a direct correlation between those two things. So we think we're helping our kids by protecting them and by preparing the way for them. But we're only doing them great damage. Prepare the child for the way. Mike Slater, shall spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.